Welcome to Telling the Tooth, the official mental dental podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gross, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Laura Jaycox. Good evening. So we have an excellent episode today. It's very relevant and incredibly timely where we talk to an OSHA expert and um, an expert orthodontist who uh, runs several offices and uh, really takes great care in keeping everyone in his office safe. Yeah, and I think a lot of our listeners, particularly uh, private practitioners, will find this very valuable information in terms of how to practice amidst a pandemic, something that I think we can say none of us have really experienced before. So we're really pioneering new territory here. Providing good tips on how to plan for the future and budget your practice with these additional costs and how to handle the situations that will inevitably arise with the peak that we're entering with staff or patients ending up positive. So with that said, I hope you all enjoy the interview. So we are joined by two very special guests today. Dr. Robert Selden graduated with distinction from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill with a degree in chemistry. He went on to attend dental school at UNC, where he received a DDS degree with the highest honors. He then completed his residency training in orthodontics, also at UNC, so a Tar Heel through and through. Today, Dr. Selden maintains close ties with UNC, where he's an adjunct professor in the Department of Orthodontics, where he helps to train the orthodontists of tomorrow. He's also the current president of the North Carolina Association of Orthodontists. We're also joined by Reggie Cook. He's the CEO of Cook Health and Safety Compliance, through which he provides health and safety compliance training and consulting services specialized to the dental environment in the North Carolina and South Carolina regions. Reggie has also had experience as an OSHA outreach trainer and an instructor for the North Carolina statewide program for infection control and epidemiology. He works closely with OSHA, CDC, OSAP, and the North Carolina and South Carolina health departments in relation to community outbreak crises, such as the current COVID-19 pandemic. We are so glad and honored to have both of you here with us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you, same here. So we would love to have um, both of your valuable perspectives on practicing dentistry amidst this pandemic. Do either of you have any uh, opening thoughts that you'd like to start with? Well, I can start. Um, I wanted to be very clear. The, the reason why we wanted to put together a presentation or to actually have this conversation is because uh, the practice of dentistry is considered an essential business um, in North Carolina, and we wanted to make sure that we do our part to protect the public as well as our employees and practice safely and have just some basic um, guidelines to be able to function within the um, pandemic. Yes, and to uh, reiterate on what Dr. Zeldin was saying, um, what I feel uh, strongly about is that with the uh, Dennis, as an orthodontist, you are an employer, and as an employer, you have a responsibility to your employees under the general duty clause under OSHA, which is a section five that covers you as an employer. 
And so it's certain things that you have to address if you see um, hazard that's not been in your workplace, but you recognize it's one there now. Either you recognize it or a staff member bring it to your attention. And the pandemic is an aerosol, part small particle. So we wanna make sure that when you do certain things in ortho, that you identify these areas that could be crucial for you and your staff members for a level of exposure. So we just wanna make sure we identify those and you have protocols and standard operations in place to address any type of aerosols that you might uh, generate in your practice doing ortho. Yes, and this is a very important and timely issue. So again, we really appreciate uh, both of you being with us today. So you've all prepared some uh, helpful scenarios that we can talk through relating to the pandemic. So for the first scenario, if a patient were to report that they've been diagnosed as COVID positive, are you required to close down your office? And if so, what is the predetermined amount of time to be closed down? Okay, One of the uh, things that's going to be very important is defining an exposure. And because we don't know who has COVID and who doesn't have COVID, what we are, have to be responsible for is to use universal precautions. And if we're utilizing universal precautions, the fact that a COVID positive patient was in the office will not require us to close down our office for any amount of time. We only have to identify where there has been an exposure risk um, and I'd like to use the example, especially since we're working with the dental profession, and let's use HIV, for example. If we are wearing gloves, masks, uh, face shields, and we don't have a breach where we come in contact with this HIV-positive patient, then we haven't been exposed. And if we treat this airborne pathogen exactly the same way, and we uh, are wearing our face coverings, and we have on face shields and all of the appropriate PPE, then we are not being exposed, even though that patient is um, uh, may or may not be COVID positive. And, and Reggie, could you add and uh, give some clarity as to what exactly is an exposure? Uh, exposure would be like Dr. Selden was saying, if you are not wearing your protective equipment um, and you are six feet or less uh, in uh, proximity of the patient, and, and you're there for more than 10 minutes, that's classified as a potential exposure. But like Dr. Selden was saying, if we wear our protective equipment that's provided for us, we uh, minimize our risk of exposure. We're working in a risky environment, but if we put protocols in place, we're not operating risky. So we wanna make sure that we know that the uh, potential of exposure is there but as long as we're wearing the proper uniforms that's been purchased by our employers and we um, mandate that for our staff members, the likelihood of you being exposed is very slim. Okay, great. That makes perfect sense. I think the question that comes up from the science perspective is whether the guidelines that we are abiding by have actually been proven to work in the way that we're carrying them out. For example, you know, a 95 is 95% effective at filtration um, if it's spit tested and functioning properly. But as is going on in most of the practice I'm aware of, 
none of us have been able to get properly fit tested for our KN95s or N95s, meaning they may not be fitting properly, meaning that an aerosolization event, if it were to happen, it is still, there's some, some likelihood that that aerosol could penetrate the barriers that we put in place. You know, unlike with HIV, where we had a very clear bloodborne pathogen transmission method that we knew of and could understand. This, I think, is much more of a black box where the aerosols can stay in the air for up to three hours. We have not properly fitted masks that are filtering at an unknown kind of percentage. So how do you, how do you run your practice knowing that we can't really for sure say we actually are safe, but we can't operate in a no-risk scenario either? Right. Yes, yes ma'am. Um, to address that, I definitely understand your concerns, and I truly understand that we're learning more and more each day about the virus. So um, you're 100% right. It's not um, total clarity of how it transmits uh, within the time frame. We have a lot of speculations with the three hours, but we know it travels in small particles. So when the CDC and the National Institute of Health, Dr. Fossey, when they brought out a lot of the recommendations for protective equipment through uh, OSHA respiratory protection plan, um, the N95 respirators or the KN95, you know, the different series uh, within that family, it was classified as the most appropriate yes. uh, protective equipment because um, I know you were saying something about 95% filtration, but what they looked at as they looked at the PFE. And PFE is a particles filtration efficiency, which it showed that it um, worked at 99.9% filtration. So whenever a respirator, which is the N95 or KN95, it's been proven, if it's FDA authorized, if it's, it's been through NIOSH, which is the National Institute of Safety and Health, if it's NIOSH certified, or classified or mandated that this is quality. It's had a quality control test that this particular um, product, a respirator, is able to filtrate 99.9% PFE small particles. So that level of a reassurance that we had was something that the CDC and the National Institute of Health stated that that was our best method of protection. And then OSHA uh, added on a face shield. The face shield was uh, designed for our engineering control device. It engineered a um, level of a barrier for you as a clinician when you did work with aerosols that that engineering control device, which is your face shield, was able to block any direct aerosols that you might get doing generated aerosol procedures. So you had a 99.9 .9 filtration respirator as well as you had a face shield over that to help block that. So they encourage doctors to buy filtration systems, different things that they uh, encourage you to uh, implement, UV light. So all these things were in place to help us minimize our exposure, but you're 100% right that we do not know exactly if it's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. But I want to add something else to this is that it's no cases in the dental field as of five o'clock today that no one in the dental industry in the United States has contracted the virus, been exposed from uh, patient to doctor or patient to staff member. 
but in the medical industry, first line at the hospital, they've had many cases where doctors and nurses have uh, contracted the virus from a patient. But in our industry, it's no cases at this time, to my knowledge, as of five o'clock today. Um, that's uh, very comforting. I, I mean, I'm very happy that dentists are doing such a good job at protecting ourselves. Um, I, I think part of that may be lack of testing and part of it may be that we also treat a much lower risk patient population um, and our own screening protocols are probably helping protect us just as much as our PPE is and yes. that at least in our office we're screening patient temperatures we have a whole questionnaire and all of that means that the people coming through the door if they were COVID positive are asymptomatic and that would be the only mechanism by which they'd be getting through. Yes ma'am. Yes, ma'am. And those things are so important, doctor, because like you said, the protocols you guys have in place with the screening, it really helps out a lot. And you're not going to be able to determine who has it and who don't have it. But the assessment is very important. Like Dr. Seldon was saying, if we use universal precautions with all our patients, even if a person doesn't have symptoms and they are a carrier, we still have put systems in place to uh, protect ourselves and our staff members from that person that could be contagious. Yeah, my, my hope going forward is that we're able to get much broader fit testing because I think the experiments done by the CDC were using systems where things were properly fit tested. And I know, you know, with my own KN95s and N95s, they're not fitting my somewhat smaller head size the way it should because I have been fit tested previously, but. I'm not able to order those types of masks at the moment. Um, so I guess my hope is that we'll get through this to the point where we can get enough fit testing throughput, and then we can actually say that we have this percentage of protection. Correct. I agree. Is there any hope of that? Well, to my knowledge, uh, talking to um, uh, individuals in OSHA in reference to respiratory protection, um, right now, you know, if you have um, a N95 or KN95, any type of respirator that you're wearing in your office, you or staff, OSHA requires you to have at least a medical evaluation of the individuals that are wearing that type of respirator. You might not um, have them go to their medical doctor. You can do uh, telemedical or you can have the staff member call their physician and do a questionnaire. And what you're doing is to see if that staff member has any underlying respiratory problems or if they're asthmatic. Because if they're asthmatic or have respiratory problems, that particular staff member should not wear a respirator. They can go wear a level three ear loop mask and a face shield. It works just as well as a KN95 or N95. So they're doing questionnaires but you have to have a respiratory protection plan to explain to your staff the type of device they're wearing is different from an ear loop mask and you're going to go over how to do a self-seal test so they would do a, a user seal test and it would show them how to put it on properly uh, a lot of my customers we sent out information webinars and youtube videos showing the doctors that i work with how to have their staff members do a user seal test and also uh, put together a respiratory protection plan for the staff that is gonna be wearing a respirator. 
I was going to ask that when I had done fit testing, they had had multiple different mask models to see which one fit my face size best. And then that was one that had been recommended to me. With the current PPE shortages, is that possible at this point in time where you know people can try out several masks and then pick the one that actually fits their face size and shape? I don't think that that's possible right now, yeah, Dr. Jacox, because there's such a shortage yeah. and we really are just getting what we can get our hands on at this point. And yeah. um, I was talking with a, a colleague yesterday. The question was, well, where are you getting your N95s or KN95s? Mm-hmm. And, and most recently, I've been able to get them when the ADA or the North Carolina Building Society has released some inventory for us to to get access to and even then that's still a limited amount i mean there have been a couple websites we've ordered them from but we were never really sure if they were fully legitimately niosh approved and so the the ones from the nc dental association have been a huge help yes ma'am. there does seem to be a large variety in approach to approaches to practice and there's no clear right or wrong Obviously, we, we always practice with universal precautions. We're using these additional respirators, um, but it seems like some practices are operating largely unchanged schedule-wise and slightly increasing their PPE and sanitation, while others are you know, seeing half their normal volume. They're spacing appointments. They're doing all these additional precautions with HEPA filters and those fogger devices. How do we, as a group of orthodontists or as a group of dentists, come to a consensus on what is considered safe practice and what will be our new universal precautions? I think that I've had lots of long discussions with Reggie about this in particular. And I think the take home message is, is that the CDC is gonna give us some guidance, but they're not any mandates per se right now because of the PPE shortage and not really fully understanding the virus. And it's left up to the, the practitioner to use his or her best judgment to put things in place to do their very best to be considerate of the pandemic. So that, you know, if you didn't have N95 masks or you didn't have face shields and you didn't have screening of your patients, those are, you would almost kind of fall outside the realm of what is acceptable. And we need to be showing that we're doing everything we can to protect our staff and our patients. And if we do that, um, what Reggie shared with me is that that keeps us out of getting in any trouble of kind of practicing um, below the standard of care. Right. And and what they're wanting you to do, and I agree with Dr. Selden uh, wholeheartedly, um, what they're wanting you to do as providers in your industry is always make a conscious effort to address the virus and everything from procedures to checking patients in, to screening patients, to um, scheduling patients, um, basically doing a level of vetting before you put them on the schedule. All these things, they consider that a conscious effort. And like Dr. Selden was saying, if we do that, it allows them to know that we address the general duty clause because each provider in the state of North Carolina, in the United States, really, they have a general duty clause to protect their staff members. And as a person that's working for you as an employee, they have a right to have a safe environment and you address any issue that you know that could cause any type of exposure or or, um, altering of their life 
in their job. So if you're doing that, no one can hold you accountable for anything but the best of your ability. And this is almost kind of like uh, Governor Cooper opening back up uh, schools and saying that, you know, there's a certain bare minimum level that you can open up at. But if you wanted to implement stricter um, social distancing or distance learning, then you're, you're welcome to have that for your particular school system. And I think that that's the way it applies in dentistry is that we have a bare minimum of what we're expected to do. But if you wanted to cut your patient volume in half and, you know, space out appointments and or distance people even further in your practice, you're certainly welcome to do that because you, as the, the business owner and the healthcare provider, have the right to establish what your protocols are going to be in your practice. So it sounds like people have a fair bit of flexibility once they've passed a certain threshold of what is now considered normal practice, which would be the screening and the additional PPE. Yes, and I think that the, um, the AAO and the SAO and the NCAO have all put out information that basically gives us basic guidance, but it really mm -hmm. falls on the individual practitioner to decide how, in fact, they do want to practice. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you. So going back to our first scenario, are you, as the practice owner, required to notify all of your patients that you had a patient present in the office with a known positive COVID-19 diagnosis? The answer to the question is no, because if we're practicing um, and following universal precautions with the patients, then we do not have to state that or identify every patient that happened to be in the office said that they were exposed to somebody because if you're in the office and you're wearing a face covering and the only time you take off your face covering is when you're sitting in the chair being worked on and when they sit you back up you put the mask back on the chairs are separated by six or more feet that patient didn't have an exposure to the other patient who may or may not have been COVID positive. Correct. And that's why it's so important for your staff members to um, really reiterate on the policy with every patient wearing a mask. Because if no one was around that that was positive without a face uh, mask or a face shield on or any type of uh, covering, it minimizes any risk because the level of social distance was already put in place in your practice, the way you do your work place practice controls. So by you doing that, it minimized anybody that was a patient in there with exposure. How do you recommend handling parents and patients who are resistant to these new office policies with screenings and or masks? Well, I'd like to say that everybody has been open to that. But the truth is, is that I do run a private practice. And so the policies that I put in place for my business is the policy that we put in place. So I did have a parent who um, came with their child to a consultation. The child came in, put on his mask after he had his temperature screening and everything, washed his hands, and then the dad was coming back and he was offered a mask because he didn't have one. And the dad says, I don't believe in those. And then we politely told him, well, then you can't come to the appointment. He said, mm -hmm. you know, we, we can FaceTime you, we can, you know, get on the telephone, but you cannot come in the office because it is our policy to be in our facility. You have to wear a mask. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And he says, you're serious? And we said, yes. And he politely put on his mask and he attended the son's consultation appointment. I think that's great to, um, to be steady in, you know, the guidelines that you set for your practice and also being, being engaged in open communication with your staff and your patients and their families. So everyone's on the same page with how you operate. So I think that's great. Should your entire team be tested if a COVID positive patient has been at your office? If, if your uh, team was exposed to that individual in close contact where uh, the level of exposure was there, where they were uh, without a mask on or in six feet or less for 10 minutes, uh, the possibility of that individual. So it would be more of a individual case of each team member that had a level of exposure, but not, not, not the whole staff. Okay. That makes sense. So it really does come down to the, if it's been an exposure or not and how we're defining close contact. Yes, sir. So when should that patient that was diagnosed as COVID positive be allowed to return for regular ongoing care? Now, Dr. Seldon, would you like to address that from a clinical standpoint? Well, interesting enough, this has already happened. And the patient who does test positive for COVID, they're going to be under the direct care of, a, of their physician. And the physician is going to release that patient um, and tell them that they can resume to normal activities. Now, you can establish a policy in your practice and say that you can return 21 days after you've tested positive where you know that you know the virus is typically has taken its course and you should be um, no longer contagious. But the, you know, the health department and that primary care doctor is going to give guidance to that patient as to when they can return to your office and you can decide if you deem it uh, a sufficient amount of time before they could return to your practice. Great, excellent. So for scenario number two, what if a team member reports that they are COVID-19 positive? In that scenario, are you required to close your office? Well, you're only required to close your office if that COVID positive team member had, again, had an exposure with the other team members in that they were within six feet for without a mask for more than 10 minutes. If, if that person, if you do have anybody on your team who's a little nervous and say, well, I did work very closely with that, that particular person, then you have to establish some guidelines of what you're going to do in your practice. Because if they're asymptomatic, um, the policy that I have in my practice is that if you feel um, that you have been exposed, then you need to go home for 72 hours and see if you have any symptoms. If you do develop some symptoms, then you should go get tested, and then you will not return to work until after the test results have come back negative. Um, or, and then, you know, God forbid they come back positive, then you're gonna um, fall into the category of we have to wait until um, you've um, recovered from the virus infection. And, and be mindful too that if a staff member or team member uh, returns um, what the team member is positive. Once they go through the process of their uh, physician, 
and it's determined that the results were positive, the health department will be contacted and they'll do contact tracing. So most likely the health department is going to tell you to get your staff members uh, test if you can determine if they had close contact with the employee without a mask on. I had a office that had a luncheon and the staff members were eating in the break room without a mask on. And one of the staff members became positive, um, not feeling well, and everyone in the office had to get uh, tests and the office had to shut down for a couple of days. Is the length of the shutdown usually a couple of days or more like a couple of weeks? The health department, your, your county health department, whatever county you're in, like Mecklenburg County, they uh, will dictate on when the results get back. Sometimes they'll tell the person they wanted two negative test results back before you can return back to work. It all depends on the contact tracing and what the health department feels that's uh, relevant for that particular practice. And if and you really do fall under the supervision or the um, the ruling of the health department in that regard. So if you did have an exposure in your practice and they say everybody needs to go get tested, then nobody can work because essentially you can't return to work until you tested negative. Mm -hmm. And given the backlog of testing problems right now, you're going to be out of work for five wow. to seven days waiting for those results to come back. And then, you know, hopefully everybody's negative, but you're probably realistically, if this does happen, you're probably going to be shut down at least a week. And uh, it could be two, depending on if somebody does or multiple people um, come back positive, And then you have to wait for the virus to take its course and hopefully everybody heals up and then they can feel safe to return, return to work. I think the most important thing in being a, a small business owner and having a, a team of 12 is that, you know, we can't afford to have too many people out. So the key is practicing social distancing and proper PPE, even away from our own team members so that we don't have any breaches that result in us having to shut down the practice. What type of recommendations are you making to your staff I mean, obviously you can't control what they're doing after hours per se, but are you giving guidelines for what they should and shouldn't do? Well, I think that leadership starts at the top. So if you happen to make, make postings on social media and you're not wearing a mask and you know, you're not taking this very seriously, then your staff is not going to take it as seriously. But um, so if, but if you are constantly practicing social distancing and you are wearing your mask whenever you're out in public and you do what you're supposed to do, everything, you're trying to control everything in, in a positive manner, then that's all that we can hope for. What people do when they're in their private settings, we don't have any control over that, but we do ask that, you know, we set a standard and we abide by that as a good leader. And, and I recommend strongly that you, uh, I tell a lot of the doctors I work with, that as a leader, you might want to have a team meeting more often, a huddle, and just kind of talk about current events to let them know that it's definitely real. And I know they sit on uh, different news channels on a daily basis, but I think when we talk among our staff about it, 
it becomes more real to them. And when they're off work, sometimes they'll be more conscious of what they do. And and it's also good to have friends and basically people that you can lean on, like Reggie, who has a million stories. <laughs> and so <laughs> he he gives me stories. So in my morning huddle, like this morning at the huddle, I had a, a colleague who had a team member show up uh, late to work, said she wasn't feeling well, little lethargic and a scratchy throat. Well, this young lady hadn't been in an office um, without having her mask on. So she was immediately sent home to go get tested. And then, so I use that scenario with my team. And I said, so if the young person who came in, put on their, you know, had a mask on the whole time they were there, but then they reported they weren't feeling well and they left, what do we do? And they said, well, you know, they need to go get tested because they're experiencing symptoms. They said, well, does anybody else need to go get tested? Like, no, because we weren't exposed because we all had on our mask. She had on her mask and she was here for just a couple minutes before we sent her to go get tested. And so I think by learning about these things and reinforcing them, the, the staff, the team is going to learn how, how to function in this environment that we have to deal with right now. So would you have to notify patients in that scenario where a team member reports being COVID-19 positive? No, because if the patient came into the practice and even though the team member was tested positive, they still have on um, at least a level three surgical mask and a face shield and gloves and a gown, they're not, you know, I mean, universal precautions is that, is so that there isn't a transmission of what you have to me and what I have to you. And, and as long as we follow those guidelines, then that patient was not exposed because of a team member testing positive. Correct. So I have a follow-up question with that. How do you, um, Dr. Selden, handle lunches and lunch breaks in your practice? Well, I'll tell you what I do and then what a couple of my uh, colleague friends have done. Um, what I do is because our waiting room, our reception area is closed currently, then it's safe to eat out there and they can sit out and eat, you know, six to 10 feet apart during that, during the lunch break. Um, also, they're very cognizant of the fact of you only take your mask off while you're eating and if you still want to hang around and socialize still social distance and keep your mask on also give them the flexibility to go eat in their car so that um, you can be completely separated um, during the lunch break so you don't run any risk of exposure during that time but i really feel in private practice the times that we're at greatest risk with our team are when we let our guard down yes just to reiterate what Dr. Seldon was saying, is that in the morning when your staff come in, please make sure you uh, let them know that the masks come on time they step in the office. Uh, I went to do an inspection. I saw staff members without masks on, and they told me the reason why they didn't have them on because patients were not there. So it's a false sense of security with dental staff members around each other without patients there. Um, so you might want to reiterate on that because someone might just have the misconception of that. Well, that's an excellent point. I think you're exactly right. We have to stay vigilant okay. at all times. 
How do you handle yeah. lunches with referring dentists um, or other kind of practice building things that we can no longer do in the current environment? Um, I have not been doing lunches with referring dentists um, during this time period. Um, I have been doing a lot of Zoom meetings, as you would imagine, <laughs> and it actually works out, you know, fairly well that we can um, we can connect during lunch or in the evening and uh, share uh, information to just to connect. But the the marketing lunches and getting together that's that's just not taking place because it's just not safe right now to do that. You had talked about Zoom meetings. Do you think the, I mean, we've brought virtual consults into our office as well. Uh, I, mm -hmm. I'm assuming you have, but haven't talked to you about it before. Do, do you think the virtual consult is here to stay? I think that it's here to stay. I think that just for convenience that people are seeking out that type of connection with your practice. Um, just for the people here in Charlotte, it hasn't been a huge draw um, if you will, you know, like uh, what happens when the patients will do an online request for a consultation, when we connect with them, we'll ask them, would you like a virtual meeting or would you like to do in-person? And I would dare say that 95% of the time they want an in-person meeting. Um, I have had a couple patients who have wanted to do the virtual meeting because they felt um, a little uneasy about just, you know, with the nature of the virus and being out in public. So they said that they would prefer to do a meeting um, virtually. And those meetings, they're different in terms of, you know, being able to connect with patients, but it's still certainly possible. And, I, and it's something that we will keep as an option for people um, moving forward. But I think that this has also forced us to become more I guess sensitive about how many times the patients need to come in the office and could you do a virtual consultation to check that expander after they've been cranking it for three weeks and they, and they can take some pictures and then text them to you. And then you can just say, you know what, you can stop cranking or, you know, we need to bring you in to uh, teach you how to <laughs> turn the crank, which is typically <laughs> usually what happens. <laughs> Yeah, it's amazing how many appointments can be made virtual when you go to having something like we've been using dental monitoring in our offices and it's been great for just cutting down on visits because unless a wire is inactive or people have run out of aligners, you don't necessarily need to be seeing them. And this way they're in touch with us every week. We're keeping track of their care. They you know, feel like we're keeping an even closer eye on them than we were before and they're not needing to come into our office. And I think that's worked really well for us. Yeah, I, I think that people really appreciate uh, not having to come in so much. <laughs> mm -hmm. There have been a number of products that I, I follow a lot of people on Instagram of you know people showing, oh, I bought this doodad or that gadget or this filter for my practice. And I think you know it's hard for practitioners to decide what to spend their money on because now there are all these products that are geared at reducing risk of transmission. How do you recommend that dentists pick which products they should bring in, be it UV, sterilization systems, medical grade HEPA filters, hot foggers, all of this? How do you how do you guide people through the process of deciding what they what they need for their own practice? Um, so you want me to address that? Please. That's yes. right up your alley. <laughs> what what I recommend to um, the dentists is that 
right now, nothing is mandated in reference to trial and error. Um, a lot of products that are sold out here are good measures. Um, it's showing a good conscious effort to address the virus like we discussed before. Uh, my recommendation is anything dealing with UV lights, uh, any type of uh, filtration system or purifier with a UV light uh, inside or a lot of HVAC units now will UV lights and ductwork for you. Uh, a lot of HVAC companies have the capability. Um, some of them can be pricely. You want to kind of shop around and see when you get the best deal on that. Uh, as well as a lot of filters that people are buying are not saying that they're not good, but it's not mandated. So you don't want to put too much money into something right now. Because I believe once they find out more about this virus, it's going to be things that they're going to implement in reference to um, positive airflow, negative airflow. And it's going to be items that are being tried and have a quality control test uh, done on it. And now we'll know that it's the most uh, reputable product out there on the market. And those things we want to put in our practice. But right now, we do take a conscious effort. We do buy products that we can, you know, address it. And I think it helped your staff members feel more confident in you as a leader that you're putting systems in place to minimize the exposure or uh, be able to have a positive negative airflow. So I guess to answer that question is that you would want to put something, but not put such financial burden on yourself until something is mandated. So, so pick out something that, that works for your practice that you can afford that helps everybody feel safer knowing that we may need to retool at some point in the future once we have more information and clear mandates from the ADA, CDC, state dental boards. Correct. Yes, ma'am. How should providers plan for the coming months where PPE shortages may once again affect dental supply chains? Uh, Dr. Selden, would you like to address that on how you're doing uh, your protocols in order? Yes. So basically, they are rationing PPE for, for, for dental providers. So basically, I've contacted my dental rep and I've asked to be able to order as much as I can. And if it means that once a month I get to order two boxes or cases of gloves or masks or whatever, then that's that's what I'm able to get. Um, you know, you can try to place orders and track down stuff on Amazon or eBay and all these other different places. The, the challenge is, is are you going to get something that is approved and that is actually safe for you to use? And then are you going to end up waiting months and months and months for it to actually show up at your doors? So right now we are, um, the, the biggest thing is obviously the, the respirator mask, and we mm -hmm. have so few of those. So what I do, like today I had a, a D-Bond day, and I wore my um, N95 mask, but then I put a level two mask over top of it so that I could preserve the N95 for my next D-Bond day. So then it's an extra layer so that that doesn't become contaminated, and then we could actually still reuse it. Um, and then I think, you know, just following some guidance they've gotten from Reggie that, you know, we take it out, we put it in a plastic bag so it can air out. And mm -hmm. then the virus would obviously have died if it did have anything on it. 
by the next time that it's used. But the key was to keep it so that it never becomes soiled. Because once it gets soiled, then you, you have to toss them. Right, yes. And also you can buy UV lights as well to uh, sanitize those um, uh, N95 or K95. Any type of PPE that you have that you want to reuse if it's not total unserviceable, you can use a UV lights and they have a UV box that you can buy. And it has a box setting where you can put um, masks that you want to reuse at a later date and it will help sanitize. It's called the UV light sanitized box. It's the C series for sanitizing. Thank you. I yes, think I, I think having the, the bag system has helped our office a lot. We have not yet gotten a UV box, um, but we each have, you know, our set of four masks that we we have we see patients four days a week uh, where we see patients you know, our Monday mask, Tuesday mask, Wednesday mask, and then, you know, use it one day per week and put it in the bag in between. And then we also put a level two over it to prevent any soilage. Um, and, and so far, that seems to be working well for us. Yes, ma'am. It's yeah. a good, good protocol. On top of the PPE shortages, I know our office has run into a lot of price gouging. So now not only are we needing to buy more PPE, but the cost of our prior PPE is a lot higher with, you know, just prices going up. How do you advise practices on managing the additional cost of PPE and all of these safety precautions? Well, I know it's a dental code out here now that you can put in for PPE uh, reimbursement, but the problem was that some companies were paying and some were not paying it, but some doctors are just adjusting their prices accordingly to kind of um, help with the PPE. Dr. Selden, would you like to reiterate on that, please, sir? Yeah, I, I, I haven't found any codes in ortho that you could bill extra for PPE. And honestly, because most of our patients are on contracts, it'd be unwise <laughs> to <Yes>. add a, <laughs> a fee on top of a contract that was signed a year ago. <laughs> so the the true answer is maybe it's time to do an assessment of what your fees are and knowing that we've had a, a significant change in what our um, overhead costs are, then it might be appropriate to raise our fees um, to offset that and not have a strict fee for it. It's just wrapped up in the, the fee increase. Great. Well, let's move to scenario number three. So this one is, what if a team member reports that they have been in direct contact with someone who's COVID-19 positive? I'm sensing a trend here, but would you be required to close down your office in this scenario? No. Well, no, <laughs> we, we would not close down the office, but that, that employee, that team member who did come in direct contact with somebody would need to go home for 72 hours and monitor for symptoms before they would go get tested. But they would not preemptively need to get tested unless they were directed by the health department for whatever reason that they told you, no, you need to go get tested because your exposure was so significant. Then that that's how we would have to handle it. But in terms of shutting down the office, no, because Again, you know, I hate to kind of beat, beat a dead horse, but we're practicing proper um, safety protocols that we're limiting the mitigating the amount of exposure that you would have in the practice. 
So just to summarize for our listeners, we'll talk through the steps, the step-by-step procedures for each of these scenarios. So for scenario number one, that was if a patient reports they've been diagnosed as COVID positive, what would you do? If the patient reports their COVID positive, um, you would basically just have the patient, um, you would not shut your office down. You would um, let the patient go through the process of seeing their physician. They will um, go through the process of being released by their physician once they got a negative test. And then you will schedule the patient uh, 21 days out and they could come back to your office once they were released by their physician. So they would come back 21 days after their Their, negative test? After their 21 days after their negative test. Okay. So they they would test positive, go through the full set of symptoms if they were symptomatic, get a negative test, and then 21 days after that. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Then for scenario two, that was if a team member reports that they they are COVID-19 positive. Okay, you uh, team member uh, reported they were positive. You would not shut your office down. You would just have the team member uh, go and go through the process of evaluation um, by his physician or her physician, and you will have them wait the process of being released by their physician. But if the contact tracing from the health department required you to uh, have each staff member uh, have a test, then you will follow directions from your local health department and contact tracing. With the health department, let's say Betty at the front desk calls you and says, you know, I, I'm positive, I have symptoms, and I was at work all of last week. Is your first step to call the health department or has the health department already been notified by Betty's physician? How does all of that work? Well, Betty's physician will turn in to the health department a positive case. Mm-hmm. And then the health department will get Betty and open up as a case and turn Betty's information over to the contact tracer. The mm-hmm. contact tracer will reach out to Betty. And once they do their assessment with Betty, then whatever individuals that Betty came in contact with, with any level of exposure that could be potential, then the contact tracer will contact those individuals. And if it was at your workplace, then the workplace will be contacted and go from there. Okay. So a lot of it will come down to what the health department recommends in terms of closure or self-quarantine. Right. Yes, ma'am. Once the exposure happens and the contact uh, tracer gets involved, then the health department will get involved. Okay. And I can't stress enough is that we stand in a position to make sure that we don't have any exposures at our office. And so we don't want to have any breakdowns in our protocols so that we don't end up having to send everybody to get tested and shut the practice down for an unknown amount of time. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And scenario number three was if a team member reports that they have been in direct contact with someone who is COVID-19 positive. You would send the team member home for three days for 72 hours, and they will basically self-quarantine themselves to evaluate any symptoms. If they're symptomatic, then they will go get a test for the virus. If no symptoms 
arise in the 72 hours, the employee is able to come back to work and move forward. And Reggie, are there um, specific requirements for that self-quarantine period other than being 72 hours? Well, they're supposed to stay at their residence. Uh, if they do go anywhere, um, they're supposed to, really supposed to have a mask on and stay six feet or more from anyone in their home. Um, they should not really leave that location unless they're going to a medical doctor for evaluations or the health department but just to go out and normally they should be confined to their home. Should staff returning from vacationing or visiting a COVID hotspot either self-quarantine for a period before coming back to work or be tested before coming back to work? Very, very good question. Um, that's, that's something that definitely a staff member should uh, quarantine themselves. That's something that a healthcare provider, um, a business owner should implement for their staff should have some type of protocol whenever they travel to a hot spot that they uh, take self-responsibility of quarantining themselves and maybe come back a couple of days early so they can quarantine themselves to see if they have any symptoms before they go back uh, in the um, group of staff members. I'd like to add to that is in kind of back when I was talking about being a good leader is that I know everybody wants to vacation, everybody wants to go to the beach, but we as the leader of our teams, we should set the, the standard. So if that means that we need to come back from our vacation a little bit early so that we can self-quarantine for 72 hours before we return to work on that Monday, then that's what we should do and make sure that that's a policy that we have with everybody because in the end, we don't want to inadvertently expose anybody in the practice. Unfortunately, we've had a lot of cases um, that I've worked with a lot of uh, my customers during this period of time, and any exposure we've had it came from a staff member inadvertently uh, exposing mm -hmm. team members. The only loophole I see in the system is that there's a sizable fraction of, of people who have it and remain asymptomatic. So even if your team member self-quarantines for 72 hours, but is an asymptomatic positive and doesn't get tested, there is a possibility that they come back to work while they're still infectious. True. But if we're wearing our protective mask and using um, our social distance and putting our protocols in that we have in place, uh, I went to a webinar at Georgia Tech and that was a question and it's very relevant because if we do these systems, we minimize any type of exposure for a staff member that is positive, but we don't know they're positive. So really being careful to socially distance in the office at lunchtime, make sure to wear masks even during non-patient times is, is critical. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Very critical. We've talked a bit about patient screening and how important it is. What screening protocol do you recommend? I believe the protocol that uh, we've talked about, the CDC guidelines and the ADA toolkit um, that came about when we opened practice uh, after the COVID-19 um, shutdown, I think those protocols that you have for patient screening is sufficient. Great. And what products have you bought for your office, Dr. Selden, or what products, Reggie, do you recommend um, people buy for their, 
for their offices in terms of additional safety measures? I purchased some plexiglass shields to put up at the front desk. Mm -hmm. um, I also bought the Medi-Air Medi uh, HEPA air filters, and I have four of them. So one of them should cover a thousand square feet. So my office is 2,500 square feet and I have four of them. So I'm just <laughs> I'm trying You're to have the cleanest, <laughs> the cleanest air possible. But, you know, those, those, those HEPA filters only cost about $250. Mm -hmm. So it was worth the investment for that. I, I did not buy um, the fogger. I didn't mm -hmm. buy the, uh, you know, the upgraded filter for the HVA system. I, I really was leaning back to say, I don't know what the guidance is going to be. And I'd hate to spend a lot of money on something and then to be told, you know what? Yeah, that, that doesn't meet the requirements. So you're going to have to buy more stuff than mm -hmm. what you spent. Well, thank you for spending it, but it's, <laughs> it's worthless. Um, I have tried some of the H, you know, the high volume suction adapter pieces. Yep. Yeah. Um, it's really cute and the videos work very well. I haven't found it to be wonderful. Neither um, have I. But yeah. I promise you, uh, wearing a face shield now and doing D-bonds, I mm -hmm. can't believe that I didn't <laughs> wear face shields before because it's amazing the amount There's... of dust and debris that gets yes. thrown on it. And I find by the end of the D-bond, I can barely see out this shield. And I'm like, how in the world did I ever practice this way? So I know there's some changes that are gonna take place moving forward, but I promise you, I'll be wearing a face shield for D-bonds uh, till I finish practicing. So will I. It's, it's amazing how, how much stuff landed on my face and my hair, and I didn't even think about it until now. But I do like the medical grade air filters. I mean, they don't take up a lot of space. I feel a lot better, the staff feels a lot better. Um, and, and yeah, they didn't add a huge amount of cost. Right. Yeah. And I, and I agree. And I think that they're definitely, I recommend them strongly. So does anyone have any closing thoughts? Well, I uh, really just appreciate you inviting us on to be able to talk about this. And um, I, I just enjoyed doing these presentations with Reggie. He has such a passion for for OSHA and compliance. Um, sometimes he doesn't tell us what we want to know, but he tells us what we have to know. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think this is going to be some, some very valuable information for the, um, our profession to give us just a little bit more guidance, exactly kind of real world scenarios with how to handle this. Because I, you know, personally, I feel like we're going to be dealing with this for at least another year, um, unless a miracle happens and we have a, uh, a vaccine that can really stop this, but um, very, very valuable information. I appreciate the platform to to talk about it. Since same here, I thank you for the platform as well. And hopefully you guys got something out of that's beneficial for your industry. And uh, the one thing I want to make sure that, that we convey is in reference to debonding. Um, I work with a lot of different dental offices from general dentist to um, orthodontist, periodontist, and pedo or surgeons and I know in your industry OSHA really wants you guys to find out what procedure that is the most um, high the high risk do an assessment risk assessment and like Dr. Jaycock said and Dr. Selden you guys have already identified that is a true risk in reference to exposure and so I just want to make sure that all 
the the orthodontists understand that and they can convey that to their staff and that would be a great thing for them to reassure their staff that they're protecting them during that particular procedure. Yes, this has been incredibly helpful and I know that there are many listeners out there who will find this incredibly useful. So Dr. Selden, Mr. Cook, it has been an absolute pleasure having you both on the podcast and thank you again for taking the time to be with us and share your expertise on this topic. Thank you very much. I'm so happy that we were able to interview uh, Dr. Selden and Reggie. Uh, both Ryan and I were residents who were trained by, by Dr. Selden and really looked up to him um, as a mentor. And Reggie had come in and talked to our residency class about OSHA guidelines before all of COVID hit. Um, well, well in advance of that. And so it was really good to hear their take on all of this because they're such, um, such reputable people and do such a great job of managing their own practices and businesses and keeping everyone safe. There's so much that's unknown about coronavirus still. And um, it's great, like you said, to have people who are really knowledgeable about this and mm -hmm. are right on the cutting edge of what is being discovered and what we can do to keep each other and our patients safe. So, Laura, is there anything that you um, particularly liked or wanted to highlight from the discussion we had? I think having, even having a discussion about what is new standard of care is really productive for us that, you know, we have the CDC guidelines and the ADA guidelines, but just our own kind of collective knowledge has already shifted. And, and talking about that, I think, is valuable for us as a field, as orthodontists and as dentists. And, and so I've I enjoyed that part of this. Yeah, definitely. I think I found really interesting that uh, the only knock on wood case so far spread in dentistry was the inadvertent staff transmission. And so I think it's really important to hit home that those times where when you're not with patients, you're equally vigilant about the proper safety precautions. So I really like the idea of that Dr. Selden had with having lunch in your car, um, as long as it's not too, as long as it's not <laughs> too, too hot. hot. Yeah, I get, you have to run the air conditioning probably. Um, yeah, and you don't want to overheat your engine, but. Yeah, yeah, but it, it would be nice to, you know, do a video call with your team, team members and everyone in their own car. I kind of like that idea. Yeah, and, and the waiting room works well that he was talking about it, talking about too, because we've done the same thing where our, our waiting room is shut down, so we have chairs that are more than six feet spaced apart, so we can sit very far from one another and eat our lunches together for the people who brought their lunch to the office and other people eat in their cars and, and make sure that we keep our distance. Well, this was super fun. I really enjoyed uh, recording this episode. I think it's extremely timely and... Um, yes. Yeah, I'm really excited to have everyone listen to this. So yeah. if you have any follow-up questions uh, after this episode, certainly feel free to leave them in a comment below the video. Uh, send us an email at officialmentaldental at gmail.com, or you can reach out to us via our social media platforms on Facebook and Instagram at Mental Dental, and we can address those questions in the following episode. But that's it for this one, guys. Take care, be safe, and we'll see you all in the next episode. See you next time.